excited to take communion every week with you. Now, it actually, what I've been thinking about this for two and a half years, but what really caused me to pull the trigger on it a few weeks ago, um, actually Matt was preaching, I don't know if Matt's in here right now, but he was preaching, and afterward, we didn't have communion, and I was sitting there thinking, after hearing the gospel preached to me, I just hungered to take the elements to remind me of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I said, that's it, we're going to it every week, we have to make it happen. So I'm excited to do that again. Well, now we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. It's on page 1003 in the Pew Bible, and we'll pick up where we've left off. And to get us started this morning, I want to ask, have you ever been on one of those epic trips, one where what you saw and what you experienced was so powerful that words and pictures just can't quite communicate what you experienced? I'm assuming, Kristen, you were just through that. How will you ever communicate to us what you experienced and what you went through? And maybe it's been a fun vacation that you took where it was just, it was just epic. It was just glorious. You loved what you did and you come home and you tell your family and friends about it and you're just like, no, you don't, you don't get it. I can tell by your reactions that you don't get how awesome this trip was. Or maybe a mission trip where God did something deeply profound and powerful in your life and you tried to communicate that to people and you just could tell that they didn't get it. I've had a handful of these experiences in my life, some vacations, some missions trips. One is a mission trip that my wife and I, Brittany, took to Romania, and we led a youth group trip there. And we had this amazing, epic time. That's us on top of a Transylvanian mountain. We saw Dracula's castle. We walked up this mountain, and that's Brittany and I as, like, kids, leading a group of kids on top of a mountain. I don't know why their parents let them go with us, but Paul, are you here? Hey, Paul right there is in that picture. It was an amazing trip, huh, Paul? Yep, but you guys will never believe us because you didn't experience it with us. So that's us on the mountain. This is us building a tent, which we had a bunch of gypsy children come out and hear about Jesus in this tent once it was finished. We found this tent in a trailer, a big pile of rusty metal, no instructions, bolts everywhere, a big canvas, and us, a bunch of, I think I was 24 at the time, and then I was the oldest one in our crew and a bunch of younger guys all the way down to age 14, we figured out how to assemble this thing without any instructions from a big pile. And so we assembled this thing so that we could do a children's festival in it. And many kids came and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is at a church there that we partnered with, kids hearing the gospel at the church. Thankfully, we didn't have to build this basement in a day to get ready. But that's just a picture of what God was doing as these kids came out to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the food. The food was amazing. This is before Instagram, before people put their food on Instagram and I, I think we are cutting edge. We took pictures of our food before it was cool. I don't even like tomatoes, and the tomatoes in Romania were amazing. My point in all that is I think you, you know and you've experienced what it's like to be on a trip, and you come home and you show some pictures, and people may laugh and they may think it's fun and they may enjoy the stories, but they will never experience what you experience, right? They, they, there's just no way for these pictures to capture the experience that you had. There's no way for these pictures to tell the story and, and for your words to adequately communicate what you experienced. And my point in that is that as we go through the rest of Hebrews, my fear is that if we together aren't as a church reading through this book, if you're not doing a little bit of work on your own to take in God's word, that the rest of the sermon series is going to be like me standing up here telling you about an epic journey, an epic trip that I've been on through the book of Hebrews. And you'll be like, okay, yeah, we get it. It's a cool book. Let's move on. 
And so my challenge to us this morning is that we as a church dig into the book of Hebrews. That we take it upon ourselves, that all of you take it upon yourselves to read and study and search the scriptures. Some of you are new to this whole Christian thing and you're not sure, you don't even have a Bible. Take the Pew Bible home with you and start reading through the book of Hebrews and write down your questions and send me your questions or get together with somebody and ask your questions. Some of you have been in the church for years and you've read through Hebrews hundreds of times and you think, eh, I've read it all before. Reread it. Come back to it and read through it again. And every week there will actually be at the bottom, on the back of the bulletin, at the bottom of the sermon notes, there will be some references for Old Testament passages that go along with the book of Hebrews. You may notice this week, yes, the entire book of Leviticus, one of the most boring books of the Bible if you have no idea what you're looking for and what you're reading for. But as we read some of these in relationship to Hebrews, I think the book will come alive to us. Last week, towards the end of chapter 4, we, we looked at um, the Hebrews writing about the Word of God being living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, exposing the hearts and the intents of man and, and laying us naked and exposed before the Lord. I think the best way for us to really experience the living, active Word of God is to be in the Word of God. So I want to invite you, church, to join this journey with me so that we have a shared experience around the book of Hebrews. So it's not just me standing up here telling you about what's cool about the book of Hebrews, but you're actually saying, I read this and it was amazing and we are together changed radically forever by the word of God. And those who come into our fellowship who have none of this background and haven't done any of the reading, they sense the work of the Spirit among us because we are all being transformed by the Word of God. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's stand and let's read our passage for this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14 and going through chapter 5, verse 10. This is the Word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. The Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. For every high priest chosen from, from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today have I, I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Father, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Help us to see what is right, what is good, what is true, what is noble, what is lovely in these words. All of it is. And help us to know 
how and what to apply that we may walk out of here as neighbors and witnesses. We want to hear your voice. We want to receive your love. And we want to walk out living in your love. So we ask that you would do a supernatural miracle in us now as we look at your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. So part of the reason why I'm encouraging you to read through this book is because for the next five chapters, the author of Hebrews, actually this was a sermon preached, and so it's a little bit weird. We are digging into a sermon and pulling apart a sermon, kind of verse by verse, chapter through chapter. But for the next five chapters, he's going to make one point over and over and over again. Jesus is a better high priest. That's the point of our passage today. That's the one teaching point we have in our passage today. And that's the point of the next five chapters. And rather than just doing a big summary of one week through five chapters, we're going to dig through this and we're going to look at different aspects of how it matters for us and how it's impactful for us, practical on a daily level here today, why Jesus is a better high priest. That's the one main teaching point in the passage today. And then he also gives us two action points. So we'll get to the two action points in a bit. But what I want to look at first is what is the main teaching point about Jesus being a better high priest? Why does the author here make this point over and over again for five chapters that Jesus is a better high priest? And in order for us to do that, I think we have to answer, ask two questions. What is the significance of the high priest? And according to Hebrews the passage we just read this morning, how is Jesus a better high priest for us on a practical level? And then how does that lead into our two action points? What is the significance of the high priest? I mean, we live in a, in a religious system so far removed from this Old Testament practice. Now, St. Louis Park has many Jewish people, and so they would know this Old Testament practice very well. They would understand this. But many of us, most of us Gentiles, we don't really understand it. Even some of those who grew up in the church, it's, it's so far removed from us that we just don't understand the significance of the high priest. And so I want to take a minute to talk about the high priest of the Old Testament. What was the significance of the high priest? Because if we don't understand any of that, we don't understand how Jesus is a better high priest and why it matters for us today. And it matters for us today. So in verse 14, it says, Since we have a great high priest... Okay, so that's how the author of Hebrews is kind of setting our mind up for us to look at the high priest. He also, at the end of chapter 2, he introduced the idea of the high priest. And now here at the end of chapter 4, he reintroduces it. And then into chapter 5, he's going to just expand and blow our minds with the idea of who the high priest is. So he's referring to Jesus as a greater high priest. What is the significance of the high priest? If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For every high priest was chosen from, who is chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man, men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's the significance of the high priest. The high priest was appointed by God, and you see this in verse 4. He's called by God, just as Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest. Well, he came in the line of Levi. So the Levitical line in Aaron, Moses' brother, as they were journeying through the wilderness, they were high priests of the Lord. This wasn't an individual person saying, I want to be a priest. I want to be the holy one who gets to have this unique, special relationship with God. The high priest was appointed by God as verse 4 tells us. And they were appointed by God, as verse 1 tells us, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. 
They were appointed specifically to have this unique relationship with God, to be the mediator, the representative between the people and God. We don't have anything like that today. Although oftentimes people treat pastors and priests in this way. They think that pastors or priests have this special designation or this holy relationship with God where, where you, the people, could never have the type of relationship that I, the pastor, have with God. That, that idea comes from the Old Testament priesthood. What we need to know and what we will see as we go through Hebrews is that, I, that idea has no weight in the New Testament. That's part of the amazing thing about the gospel is that you, every individual in this room, has as much right to draw near to God and to be in his presence and to have a deep, abiding, intimate relationship with him as I, a pastor, does. In fact, you can far out, you can exceed me in your spiritual walk, in your pursuit of Christ, in your knowledge of him, in your experience of his presence. Isn't that incredible? I stand up here and preach because God called me to stand up here and preach, not because I have something that you could never have. That's a glory of the gospel. I'm not supposed to get there yet. I'm supposed to save that towards the end, but I just need to pause. And isn't that incredible? The significance of the high priest in the Old Testament was that he would work on behalf of men for God. He would do something that we common folk could never do. They were appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices. And so as you read through Leviticus, it's, it's terrible. I'm so glad that our relationship with God doesn't have to be the way that it used to be. Read through Leviticus. You're probably going to feel a little bit miserable. And, and I think part of it is there to help us understand how great and incredible Jesus is. That we don't have to go through the ritual cleanings that they went through in the Old Testament. That we don't have to bring the type of offerings that they brought in the Old Testament. They would bring all these different offerings to the priests. As it says here in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, the priest is appointed to act on behalf of men and God to offer gifts and sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, we would have to bring our gifts, we would have to bring our sacrifices, we would have to bring our sins to the priest. The priest would have to do all of this cleansing activity. And especially the, the pinnacle of this was the Day of Atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus 16, where it was the Day of Atonement, the one day that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the only day that he could enter into this place where the presence and glory of God dwelt. He would go in and he would make a sacrifice over the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. One day a year, he could enter that holy of holies, the holiest place of all. And so us, the people, we would have to bring sacrifice. We would have to bring offerings. We would have to fulfill all of this law, all that it demands. And we would have to bring our stuff to the priest. And the priest would enter into the presence of God and hope to receive his mercy. That's the significance of the high priest in the Old Testament. He was communicating to God on our behalf. He was God's means of mercy and grace to the people because God is so holy, so other, and the people were so riddled and stained with sin that he graciously set up a system where we could, through the priest, enter his presence and receive redemption, receive atonement. That's kind of what's being set up here, and we're going to see more and more of that as we go through the, through the book of Hebrews. So we're going to dig into what the tabernacle is, what symbols it had, what they symbolized, what all the priests had to go through. We're going to uncover more of that in detail over the coming weeks. But today what you need to know is that the high priest was your only hope of receiving atonement for sin. 
and somebody to stand in the presence of God in your place on your behalf because you couldn't do it on your own. How does this passage practically show us that Jesus is a better high priest? Okay, so if that's the significance of the high priest, he was there on our behalf because we couldn't go on our own. How does this passage show us that Jesus is better than the Old Testament high priest? There's a handful of ways. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Since then we have a a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's a way that Jesus is better than the Old Testament high priest. The Old Testament high priest would pass through the court of the tabernacle into the holy place and then through the holy place into the holy of holies one time a year. That was the place that the Old Testament priest passed through. The system set up for him to come into the presence of God. But here, the preacher of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus passed through the heavens. So while the Old Testament high priest was allowed to pass through the holy place into the holy of holies, the most holy place, one time a year, God's presence on earth contained in this tent, Jesus was in the presence of God in the heavens. He's better than the Old Testament high priest. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The high priests of the Old Testament knew sin. They knew temptation. They were human beings, fallen like us, sinners by nature and choice. So they they understood what the people of Israel went through. They understood temptation. They understood sin. But as Jesus comes as the better high priest, he also understands temptation. He also understands sin. says that he was tempted in every respect as we are, and yet without sin. Sometimes people think, well, how can Jesus really understand the struggle of temptation because he never sinned? And so how does he know? He he never sinned, and so he doesn't really know the full allurement of sin. But I I think that's that's kind of a bogus idea because temptation, you feel it stronger as you resist it, do you not? When you give in to temptation, you feel guilt and shame. I mean, think about when you're experiencing temptation. When you're resisting it, you feel the weight of temptation. You can sympathize with somebody who has struggled in the way that you struggle. Once you give in to temptation, though, you feel guilt and shame. You don't feel the struggle of resisting. You all of a sudden feel the guilt of not resisting. C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this idea. He says, it's a silly idea. There's a current silly idea that good people do not know what temptation means. You ever thought that like, oh, they're a really good person? They don't understand my struggle. They don't understand my temptation because they're good. They've never walked in my shoes. It's a silly idea that good people don't understand temptation. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like to not give in for an hour. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, on the other hand, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. He's the only one who perfectly rejected temptation, who threw it off. He sympathizes with our weakness. Jesus knows what you are going through when you are tempted. That's what Hebrews is telling us. In every respect, he's tempted as you are. When is temptation the strongest? 
when you're tired, when you're stressed. Jesus was often tired. He was poured out like a drink offering. He was going from town to town to proclaim the gospel. When is temptation the hardest for us? When we're tired. How do we sometimes try and refill ourselves? By binge-watching Netflix. Jesus, when he was tired, he resisted the temptation to... He didn't binge-watch Netflix because they didn't have it. Whatever the first century equivalent of binge-watching Netflix was, Jesus didn't do it. He resisted temptation. He got alone with God the Father, received the presence of God, and got renewed and refreshed and went back in the game. Jesus resisted temptation. I'm sure he must have felt the temptation to get even with his enemies. I mean, there's people who speak poorly against you. There's people who do wrong to you and we want to get even. Jesus had people speak poorly about him. Jesus had people do wrong to him. And he never got even. He went to the cross on their behalf and he looked out at them and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus resisted the temptation to covet. He was primarily homeless, traveling from city to city. And he hung out with a lot of rich people. I mean, often we have this idea that Jesus came for the sick, right? So he was always with the sick and the poor, and he was with the sick and the poor. He touched leopards. He spent time with prostitutes. He cared for the down and out of society. But he also spent a lot of time with rich people who had nice things. Luke, a doctor. He was in Luke's home. He spent time with rich people in their places, seeing what they had. And and you don't think that he thought for a minute or that he felt the temptation of wanting what they have and setting up a nice little comfortable home for himself to just enjoy his life. Yet he resisted temptation, and he stayed on the path that God gave him. The desire to be self-centered with his time? I think so. He experienced temptation in the way that we experience temptation, and yet he resisted perfectly. So he can sympathize with our every weakness. Jesus is also a better priest in that he was appointed as the Son of God. So look at chapter 5, verse 5. Verse 4 says that God called Aaron. So God set up the priestly system. He called Aaron and Levi. He made this, this priestly line, 12 tribes of Judah. Levi was the one that the priestly line came down through Levi. Jesus wasn't a descendant of Levi. But he didn't have to be. He's a better high priest because he is a descendant of God the Most High. So he's a high priest in the line of God, not in the line of Levi. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Jesus is a better high priest because he's a priest in the line of God. God the Heavenly Father, Jesus eternally existing, always has been, always will be. He's not dependent on the line of Levi and Aaron to give him status as priest, but he is God. He also comes through the line of Melchizedek, which we're going to talk about in a couple weeks. And I'm really excited to talk about Melchizedek because nobody knows anything about him. So we're going to talk about him. But look at verse 6. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're not going to dig into him today because we're going to dig into him in a few weeks. But there's this incredibly powerful picture of what it means that Jesus is in, in the line of Melchizedek, not simply Levi and Aaron. He's a better high priest. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He's a praying priest. He, he petitions on our behalf and, and he offered up 
prayers and loud cries with tears. As he resisted temptation, he's crying out to God the Father, sanctify me, set me apart, help me to do your will, to stay obedient to you. I see all the things around me and I'm tempted by the things around me. God, would you set me apart? And he's praying for us. He's praying for those he led. He is a better high priest because he's making prayers and supplications continually with loud cries and tears to him who can save. Lastly, he's a better high priest we see in this passage because he was fully sanctified. We are on a journey. We are justified one time by the blood of Jesus. That means we're made right before God the Father by Jesus the Christ. And then we are on a continual journey of sanctification. That means being made like Christ, growing up into Christ, becoming more like Christ. Jesus himself was sanctified perfectly. We never will be. Someday we'll be glorified either when we die or the Lord returns to bring us home. But right now we're on a journey of growing up into Christ. This passage tells us that Jesus was sanctified. Look at verse 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. I don't even understand that. But it's written here about him. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, so he was always perfect, he's eternally God, yet somehow through his suffering, through his obedience in the midst of temptation, he is perfected. He's set apart as the perfect sacrifice for us in, the one who can perfectly understand what we go through. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The source of eternal salvation. The high priest in the Old Testament only worked as a mediator between God and man. He was, he was a temporary mediator between God and man, and he wasn't the source of eternal salvation. He could only bring a sacrifice into the presence of God and hope that God would grant salvation. Jesus, the better high priest, comes in as the source of salvation, the source of eternal life. He is the better high priest. And so what does this matter for us? There's two action points for us that are just glorious and blow me away over and over again. Look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, Jesus, the better high priest, the one who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's an action point for us. What do we do about all of this? If Jesus is the better high priest who did everything in our place, what do we do? What do I contribute? What do I add to the table for my salvation? Nothing. Hold fast to your confession. Believe in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Lean on Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Hold fast to what you say is true. If, you, if you've come to a point in your life of believing with your head that Jesus is the Son of God, the only source of salvation, continue to profess that, to confess that. Hold fast to that confession. Do everything you can to cling to the gospel. Because our world tries to get us to add onto the gospel all this religious duty, all this religious activity, all this religious stuff. And the essence of our salvation is to hold fast our confession. And then the second action point is to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, you could never enter the throne room of God. 
we had no chance of getting into the presence of God. Only the high priest could do that one day a year. And even in that, he might die if he did it wrongly. We're going to see this over the next couple of weeks. There was all this system set up where he had to go through to hope that he wouldn't die in the presence of God. God is holy and other and not to be messed with. He, he spoke to Moses on the Mount Sinai and he drew a line around it and said, let no one come near the mountain except you, Moses, come on up. And there was cloud and there was fire and there was smoke and a booming voice of God and anyone who would draw near was killed on the spot. That's the Old Testament picture of God's holiness. And in that, he continued to make a way, he continued to show mercy and grace, but it was through this complicated system of the high priest. Now in the New Testament, Jesus comes as the better, final, right, and true high priest so that you and I could draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. No fear that God's going to reject us. No fear that God's going to strike us down. No fear that God's going to look at our sacrifice and turn it away because our sacrifice is Jesus. He's the one and true only high priest. And so you and I have the privilege to walk into the very presence of the living God and be safe and be known and be seen. What does it say? That we can draw into his presence with confidence that we might find mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We're all needy people. We have needy places. We have things that we can't accomplish. And this passage says that because of Jesus, because he is a better high priest, we are able to enter the throne room of God and find grace and mercy in our time of need. Amen? We're going to respond to that truth and just read verse 14 and 16 over a handful of times and then come and take communion and remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. He is present and here. He's not contained in the Holy of Holies like in the Old Testament, waiting for the priest to go in the one day a year. He is here now. He is present. Let the communion elements remind you of that. And as we sing, remember that God has sought us out, that God has come near. Hold fast your confession and draw near to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done in sending your son Jesus, true righteousness, the one and only high priest. It's an incredible privilege that we have to draw near to you, God, to enter into the Holy of Holies. In fact, there is no more a place, a holy of holies where you're contained for you have been spread out around the globe and you are here now living within our hearts. We are the holy tabernacle of God. We are your dwelling place. And so I pray that we would be reminded of your nearness, that we would hold fast our confession of what we believe and that we would take advantage of the accessibility that we have to you. As we remember you now, as we respond to the gospel of song and the Lord's Supper, would you powerfully impress on our hearts and our minds how, how life-changing it is to have the presence of God. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.